Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com. Also, check out the Sonic Cinema Patreon at patreon.com backslash sonicsinema. There you will get some brief write-ups on older movies that I watched for the first time but don't necessarily review for the main site, as well as write-ups for short film blocks, like some of the ones at uh, Fantasia Fest 2020, which we will be discussing here, as well as um, deeper dives into films, into things like Jackie Chan, like the Lonesome Dove series, like the music for Terrence Malick films, and you can find a lot of that at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema, and I hope you enjoy. So this this uh, podcast here is going to wrap up uh, Fantasia Fest 2020, which was my third official uh, press uh, film festival experience, and the most unusual because of the fact that uh, due to the COVID-19 p- pandemic, uh, the Fantasia Fest went virtual this year. And I, I, re- I write about what that sort of entails um, in the blogs that I've written about Fantasia Fest. And it's, it's, it was a really interesting experience. It was rewarding. And I love the fact that they were able to make it as interactive as they were in terms of the live screenings, in terms of Discord, in terms of just a lot of the things that they did. And shout out to the uh, staff at Fantasia Fest for a terrific job of putting on this unusual um, film festival. I do hope to go in the future. It's in Montreal, so we'll see how that goes. But I definitely uh, would like to experience this in person. It was just a lot of fun to do. And so... Many props to the uh, staff and everybody who put on Fantasia Fest this year. They did a terrific job, and they they made it feel in as much like a community, especially with the Discord and the way they set up the Discord as as much as they could. And it was great to be able to interact with other members of the press, people who were just there for certain films, and to just talk about some of the films that we watched throughout the past two and a half weeks of the festival, though for me it was closer to a month because I started my uh, viewing in on July 31st. And uh, that's because of the press access opening around then. And all told, between short films and narratives, I saw 73 films that played Fantasia Fest, whether in the live screenings or the on-demand selections. It was a pretty wide variety of movies, and I really enjoyed the the uh, variety. And it's a shame that I couldn't take part in more of the... Um, live screens because of the fact that they geo-blocked those for Canadians only, but that's that's fine. Uh, as, as really strange as my first trauma experience was, it was it was definitely one that I'm glad that I waited to see live as opposed to just getting a screener for it because of the fact that then I could interact with people on the Discord about uh, the movie itself. And that was that was a lot of fun. I don't really want to <coughs> rehash things that I've already written about in terms of the experience of Fantasia Fest. Uh, you can read that at sonic-cinema.com. And uh, but what I want to do is sort of give you a rundown of my best and favorites of the festival, and this will probably be of the structure for these post-festival podcasts uh, as we move forward into the Atlanta Film Festival this month and just in general uh, for uh, any film festival I cover as well as, and you will get a couple more interviews that I did throughout the Fantasia Fest with filmmakers for 
a couple of the movies that um, I'm going to list on this selection. And uh, you can read my reviews at uh, Sonic Cinema that are all marked as Fantasia Fest. And you can, and the ones that I did interviews with are all embedded on on the reviews. So I hope you check out those. There are a lot of great discussions with filmmakers and a lot of varied discussions with filmmakers. It was really a wonderful experience being able to interview as many people as I did for this. And uh, you're going to get two more uh, two more interview sessions in this podcast, and I hope you enjoy those. And I'll uh, tell you when those are coming up. I basically have 10 categories here I decided I wanted to showcase as far as Fantasia Fest. I, you could say they're my personal awards for the uh for for the festival. And I did this in a way where I go over my five best movies of the festival, my five favorites, um, my favorite performances, and my favorite short films. Uh, because actually all my most of my uh best are actually narratives. Um, or feature lengths. And I also have different um, categories here. They're not necessarily about any technical aspect of the movie in general, but it's, it's about um, certain elements in these films, and they were really wide variety. And uh, so we're going to start with those, and there are six categories I'm going to go over with that. Uh, we're going to start with the best laughs of the film festival. And that's actually going to lead us into the first interview session that you're going to get in this um, podcast. And so for best laughs, for number three, it's actually uh, Lloyd Kaufman, Shakespeare, hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm. Um, it's not a particularly good movie, but it was really entertaining, and it was one that I I think any social commentary that's trying to make it it kind of makes pretty well, and it was just a really entertaining movie, and was one of the funnier movies I saw, even though it's just completely stupid and ridiculous. So number three for my best laughs is hashtag Shakespeare shitstorm. Number two is a short film by Kay Adelaide and Mariel Sharp, who also worked on another movie you're going to hear about on this podcast. And it's for their short Don't Text Back, which is just a really wonderful uh, little dark comedy on... Um, women kicking the crap out of uh, toxic masculinity. And I had a chance to talk to Kay and Mariel about the film. And before we go to number one, I'd like to give you the opportunity to listen to that interview. How did you, uh, what was the inspiration behind Don't Text Back? Um, not Sure. Great. Um, basically, uh, what kind of started the idea is just talking to a lot of our, our women friends who are dating men in Montreal and hearing kind of the same story over and over again, that they've gone out on a date with this guy or two dates or maybe three and like not thoroughly unimpressed, not a great guy, not mm -hmm. a great match. Um, and still feeling really compelled to be in touch with them and answer their text messages <laughs> even, and then to kind of get into this weird dynamic with them. And so we have a lot of friends who've been in that situation time and time again. And so this film kind of started out as like a comedic approach to, to investigating why that might be. Mm -hmm. And I think I really love, one of the things that I really love about, one of the things I really appreciate about was the fact that it it also, it takes on this idea of, toxic masculinity and this and basically it it does so in a way that gets the point across but isn't just painfully brutal to watch it's very it maintains that light comedic tone 
and uh, but still does get its point across. And that that's one of the things with a with a subject like that, it's it's kind of hard to hit that balance. We think we tried to really work on the idea of trying to never seem too mean-spirited. We wanted mm -hmm. to keep it kind of more light and easy. So we felt like if there was anything that was um, too much sort of pointing at one like group of people and saying they're all ridiculous or something, we didn't want to include that. Like, even though there's some, some fun poked at people who are into new age uh, energy healing and crystals, we're never, we're not saying that that makes you a bad person. We're just saying everyone's kind of funny in some ways. You know, I think, yeah. I think even men in lo local bands can still see how um, it's funny to this caricature of, of Will and that he's so over the top that nobody really sees themselves in this character. Yeah. And I, I think, I think one of the things that is so effective about the film is that it is, it is still rooted in the female in the female experience of it you don't hear even though you you see her continuing to get the text messages from will you never hear from his perspective you just hear you just see her reacting to it and I, that's that's one of the that's one of the main reasons it works so well is because of the fact that it stays within her perspective as more than just trying to do both sides of it. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that. Yeah, that, that's really important to us. I think as filmmakers was really to show, to show exclusively the, the female perspective. And that I think that mirrors sort of our experience, which inspired us in this film in that most of these really awful men that we hear horror stories about, we never get to meet them. Mm -hmm. We just hear our friends' interpretations of them, or they'll maybe show us texts or profiles, but it's this kind of mystery man that doesn't have a voice of his own, but his actions kind of speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, was how much did was there a uh, was, was there a going back and forth as far as how much of a horror aspect that did you want to add, or was it is was it basically largely comedic, and you were going to have just a few moments of, you know, horror playing into that. Yeah, I think we we did toy around with that a bit. We a lot of the choice to not make it as horror uh, constantly horrifying was uh, was somewhat of a budgetary choice to uh, work with to, our shoestring to work with our shoestring budget and what we had kind of and and also. Um, for speed, it was a 17-page script when we started, and we shot it in two days. So there wasn't a lot of time to do a, a great variety of effects or extremely dramatic lighting or things like that. So uh, we kind of wanted to play with what our strengths were, which is these two wonderful performers who are great at funny, snappy dialogue, mm -hmm. and to sort of make it very dialogue-based. And then by having the ever-present uh, wounded neck, it kind yeah. of keeps that that genre edge present the whole time. Yeah, and I like that the 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 ultimate solution to the 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 issue that uh Kelly is having in in the movie is not necessarily an obvious one. It I, I like that there's an element of surprise to that and then there's still that last minute uh bit of terror that ultimately brings back this one idea which I point out early on in my review that it's like, oh, that's that's where that comes into play, and uh, it, it's it's really it's just really well constructed and really the type of the type of thing that is it it's a great example of doing doing a strong and even complicated premise in a short amount of time and it being extremely effective. Oh, thanks. That's thanks. really nice to hear. Thank you. A lot of these things kind of came up naturally in the writing process. Mm -hmm. um, we initially had the idea of uh, there being a Himalayan salt lamp, which is kind of a popular New Age decor item. 
and actually would smash the locket with that at the end. But then we came up with the joke about the guy problems crystal being this enormous yeah. thing <laughs> later on. And we realized, well, wait, if we have this enormous crystal, why, why use that? Why not use that instead of the salt crystal? It's solving the guy problem. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. No, and it works. It, it works perfectly in, in that respect. Um, when when does the uh, when does the uh, short play during the festival? So there's two screenings under the under it's on the underground section and it's playing before the feature film Bleed with Me, mm -hmm. which uh, which I also produced and Kay did the special effects on. Okay. And uh, it's gonna play on the 26th and, and the first oh, yeah. of September. Yeah. Okay. The 26th of and August and first of. And and I have to say I have screened Bleed with Me and I really loved it. I I thought it was oh, tremendous. Um, I I'm really I know a lot of the people who also screened it as far as uh, critics have really enjoyed it as well. If really liked it as well. Um, yeah, that that one is that one's one where uh, it's it it does stick with you and it's it's one that lingers and it's. Like it's it's another example of where the premise is not quite going where you expect it to go, and the the surprise in that and the effectiveness of the horror is uh, it it really does a lot with a little, and that's that's one of those things that's um, really great to uh, see. So, thank you. No problem. Um, well, thank you very much for your time. I, I appreciate it, and I'm glad we were able to uh, talk for a little bit. Thank yeah, you so pleasure. much. Thank yeah, this was, this was really fun, and mm -hmm. we really enjoyed your, your review. <laughs> thank you. For number one in the best laughs I had for Fantasia Fest, it is Ryan Kruger's just completely ridiculous and awesome and wild, uh, dark comedy genre film fried berries if you get a chance to watch this movie take the chance to watch this movie uh, it was really interesting talking to uh kruger about the movie and it was it's one of the crazier potentially audience favorite movies to come out the festival was on demand although i think if people would had a uh, live screen of it, it would have absolutely killed it would be terrific to watch this with an audience um it's it's one of the most enjoyable movies i saw at the fest even though it's kind of a mess in a lot of ways it's still really terrific film um so that is those are my choices for the best laughs um for best action it actually is going to bring us to the second set of interviews, but I'm going to hold off on those until later because I I have I I do want to uh, have the filmmakers of uh, my number three choice in this category for the sake of vicious to sort of have the last word on Fantasia Fest. And if you read my closing blog about the festival, you know why. Um, but for number three, for best action, is For the Sake of Vicious. Number two is Bautran's The Paper Tigers, which is a really entertaining action comedy martial arts movie. Number one is Crazy Samurai Musashi, which was in the on-demand selection. And this one is I is probably a bit controversial because... The the big hook of this one is that there's a single 77-minute um, action scene where the titular uh, samurai goes up against 400 people. Not all at once. Uh, and you can tell that people are going in and out of frame to, you know, sort of beef up the numbers and stuff. But uh, I I really enjoyed the energy of this movie. I really enjoyed the way the filmmakers built tension uh, during the single shot that lasts through most of the movie. 
and it was it was one that stuck with me throughout the festival. And so my choice for the best action of the festival was Crazy Samurai Musashi. Uh, next up is Best Terror, which, you know, best horror if you want to look at it this way, but best terror in the sense of the way the filmmakers um, give us a sense of dread and really build a sense of tension and dread uh, in in the film. And these these three films all did it in really unique and interesting ways that I couldn't help but get into. Um, number three is The Dark and the Wicked, which is slated for a November release. And I definitely suggest checking it out because it's really... It's it's dark and wicked, and it's entertaining to watch because of both of those elements. Uh, number two is The Curse of Audrey Earnshaw, which, if you'll recall, was one of the movies I was most looking forward to going into the festival, and it did not disappoint. Uh, it's It's got a very sinister edge to it as well that is hard to get out of your memory. Number one for me is Senzaru, and this was... This was one that was had more of a there was a little bit more heart and warmth in this one than the other two. And that's part of the reason that I like it. But one of the things I also really liked about it, and there there could have been a couple of other choices in this, is the way Sanzaru um uses the very real world uh struggle with dementia in a way to present supernatural elements to where we're not quite sure whether we're seeing what we're seeing and uh, how much of that is accurate and true in the reality of the film. And so number one for me for best terror is uh, Sanzaru. This one is for best heart, and the, there are a lot of choices I could have gone with in this one, but the way I'm defining this in terms of best heart is just how strong is the message and how powerful do the filmmakers get in conveying a specific message in this film. And uh, that's why that's why I kind of wanted to uh, represent here with this category. And uh, number three is special actors, which the you can read the review of on Sonic Cinema, and it's just a really clever sort of Ocean's Eleven type heist comedy, but its heart is in a very unique place, which you get to by the end, and it's it's really uh, the the ending really makes up for a lot of some of the other film the film's other uh, shortcomings throughout the movie. And so special actors is number three. Number two for me is the documentary Clapboard Jungle, which is about the struggles of independent filmmaking and independent distribution in uh, the modern era. And Justin McDonald did a wonderful job doing it. it. It gives me even more respect for filmmakers who are working on that level of uh, independence and struggling with it. And so he he captures he he captures some harsh realities that really it's hard not to take into perspective when it comes to how certain films are able to get off the ground and uh the ones that aren't are uh it's it's tough to get a movie on off the ground on on any level but especially on the really small independent level it's it's very difficult so clapboard jungle is my number two my number one is uh bleed with me which we will get to later on and this one just this this movie spoke to me on a lot of levels i could have gone with it for uh for a lot of other ones but um I, I think the way that Amelia Moses tells this story with her actresses is it, it gets all of the emotions and all of the uh, 
pathos that's trying to get to with this story absolutely right. You can read my review, and you can also listen to the interviews that I did with uh, Moses as well as the actresses to um, talk about the film. And it's it's one of those it's one of those movies that sticks with you. And we'll talk about more as this podcast goes along. So next up is best story, which I'm not is not the same thing as best screenplay, but just the stories that take twists and turns that you don't necessarily expect and the stories that um, really kind of stick with you for a lot of varying reasons. Uh, number three for me is a movie that I really kind of loved and uh, will be mentioned again here on in this uh, podcast is Tezuka's Barbara, which is based on manga. And it it's a... It's an interesting take on film noir that really spoke to me. And it I love the images, I love the performances, I love the style and the energy of the movie. It's it's just very unique for what film noir what we typically consider for film noir, but it does have that a lot of those same ideas. So number three for best story is Tezuka's Barbara. Number two is the documentary "You Cannot Kill David Arquette," uh, and this this one, the and you can listen to my interview with the uh, filmmakers on it. It's it's interesting to see how unexpected a documentary is, and we're going to have another one here uh, soon here coming up that really just took me by surprise and spoke to me on a lot of levels. And the story of David Arquette becoming a wrestler and trying to redeem himself from his earlier years is uh, is one of the more disarming stories we've gotten this year, and it's well worth checking out. Whether you're a fan of the actor or not, it's it's a very great uh, underdog story, and I hope you uh, check out You Cannot Kill David Arquette. My number one choice for best story is another documentary. It's called Morgana, which Morgana, which I published a written interview with the filmmakers and the subject Morgana Muses, who is who was a housewife and after her divorce, uh, was at the end of her rope, and she ended up turning to becoming an adult film star. And the story of how she gets to that transition, the, the way, what she's presenting in her um, films as an adult film star, and the way it's really opened up her life is one of the most surprising narratives I've seen in a good number of years. And it was really great to get some insight on making the documentary from the filmmakers. And I'm very curious to see how audi larger audiences are going to respond to it. I know the people who saw it at Fantasia Fest really respond to it. And so number one for my best story is Morgana. Uh, the final one of these type of categories is best vision. And this is basically, these are basically the movies that have the most unique visions of the festival. And the ones that stand out in ways that they make an impression and they go places that we don't necessarily expect and they go to um and they say things that you know are kind of important to say to a certain extent and uh all of these films really stood out to me in those in that respect uh number 3 is Chino Moya's Under Gods which is a fantasy set in a futuristic uh, desolate Europe, and it's it's sort of an anthology film in a lot of ways, and the ways it's a 
it's an anthology film doesn't ne- don't necessarily jive with the way we're used to thinking of anthology films. But as you can hear in my interview with uh, Chino Moya on with my review, um, it was a very interesting stream of consciousness uh, project for him, and I think you get that impression in the film, and it's hard to shake the film after you've watched it. Um, I I definitely knew I wanted to talk to uh, Chino after making after watching it and the discussion was one of my absolute favorites of the festival. Number two is fried berry. Uh, it's just such a crazy and entertaining, uh, weird vision of like a body snatchers type movie. Uh, but very darkly comic and it's unlike anything else you'll ever see from, just in general, but from this festival in general, uh, <laughs> as a whole. So, Friedberry was number two. Number one was one of the movies I was really looking forward to um, going in, and it was the final film of the career of, of the life of Nubik Hiko Obayashi, uh, and it's called Labyrinth of Cinema. It's a three-hour-long film. It's a big meal of a movie, but it's well worth checking out. Uh, His style is completely unique. His vision is completely original and takes you places that you don't necessarily expect, and it's well worth watching. So number one for me for best vision is Labyrinth of Cinema. Before we get to the uh, big ones for the films, uh, I wanted to give a shout-out to my favorite performances of the festival. And there were six of them, uh, partially because two of them go hand-in-hand because you really cannot have one without the other in terms of a particular film. Um, First up is Fumi Nikaido. For Tezuka's Barbara, the she is the titular uh, Barbara of the movie, and there's something about her you you completely understand from the second she enters the film that she is why the main character becomes infatuated with her, and it's really it's one of those performances that you are inst- that is instantly memorable and. It, leaves the impression that it's intended to leave uh, whenever you watch it. Next up is Matthew Page for The Paper Tigers, and there are a lot of really fun performances in The Paper Tigers, The, uh, but Matthew Page is one of those scene-stealing performances that you just can't help but remember. And he has a moment halfway through the film that is so just awesomely hilarious that you you kind of need to watch the movie which is well worth watching anyway for that scene alone and so matthew page for paper tigers is next uh the next two are the ones i was talking about as far as you can't really have one without the other is lee marshall and lauren Beatty for bleed with me and uh this this movie this movie made an impression it really did make an impression on me. And the way that the two actresses build their characters and the way they play off of one another and the way that the characters themselves need the other one in a way that is almost, you don't necessarily hear it throughout most of the movie, but you feel it throughout the most of the movie. It's a credit to how well they uh how how much thought they put into their characters and how well they work together so it's Lee Marshall and Lauren Beatty for Bleed with Me next up is Gary Green for B- Fried Berry he is Barry in the film and it is one of the great purely physical performances i've seen in a good long while and uh the the he doesn't say much 
and uh, for somebody playing an alien stuck in a <coughs> in the body of kind of a bastard, um, he does a phenomenal job. This was his first film, as uh, Kruger mentioned, and uh, it's he he sells it completely, and he's a big reason why the movie works the way it does. My my favorite performance and the one that is probably the one that I uh, I come out thinking the most about in Fantasia Fest is Katya Herbers from The Columnist. She plays the columnist in the movie. She she puts the she snaps the movie into focus in a way that the movie doesn't necessarily do all the time and it's it's a fantastic performance. Even if we are not quite sure what the film's trying to say, we feel like we know exactly where she's coming from. And so that was, for me, the best performance I saw for in Fantasia Fest. Next up, we have my favorite short films. And uh, this... I, I got to see all four of the short film blocks, and I... Wanted to do. I wanted to pick ones that. I wanted to pick at least one from each, uh, short film block. And uh, ones that were representative of the overall quality of the blocks, in general. And uh, I hope you check these out when they, uh, are available elsewhere, whether it's other film festivals or, not, um. The Grave of St. Oren, which is an animated film. Uh, the Green Sea, which was part of the uh, short gauge trauma block. And it's about a family living with an abusive uh, stepfather. Your Last Day on Earth, which was a very unusual but beautiful time travel story. Blocks, which was from the Born of Women uh short film block and uh is about a mother who's trying to deal with the stresses of her life and then my favorite short film of the festival was reflexion and it's one where uh two people are communicating with one another and uh they're they're trying to make a connection even when they're not with uh with themselves with each other in in person and it's just a really beautifully animated short film and it was it was honestly the best short film I saw the entire festival and there were some really great ones but uh Reflexion was uh my top choice for favorite short films next we have my five favorite movies, which is to say the five that really stuck out the most to me and really made an impression on me. Uh, you'll be familiar with all of these after all of this. Uh, For the Sake of Vicious, Bazooka's Barbara, Morgana, Under Gods, and Bleed With Me. And that brings us to my fi the five best movies I saw at the film festival. For for number five is for the sake of vicious. Number four is reflexion. Number three is the paper tigers. Number two is the documentary Fuels Good Man, which is about the history and legacy and struggles of the creator Peppy the Frog to try to wrestle his creation away from the white supremacists and alt-right that co-opted Pepe and Bleed With Me was the top choice, my top film for the Fantasia Fest. And it it was really wonderful to be able to see a lot of these films. I probably would have been able to see some of them anyway at other film festivals or just they might have come across my way in general, but being able to see them for this particular group of films was, I think, really great. And it was a really great way for me to sort of wrap up the summer before I went back to work. 
And so the second interview uh, that you're going to get this this uh, podcast is from is me as part of a roundtable with Gabrielle Carer and Reese Evanshen. Uh, they are the creators of For the Sake of Vicious. And the reason I wanted to end with this, and one of the reasons that the movie stuck out so much to me, other than how good it is, is because of the fact that this movie really snapped into focus a lot of the things that we've kind of been missing from cinema as cinemas have been closed in terms of genre, in terms of the types of stories we've been getting. You know, we, we've gotten a lot of comedies, we've gotten a lot of horror movies, but we haven't re- and a lot of dramas, but we've kind of been missing those thrillers, action movies, um, science fiction movies, and that's kind of what Fantasia Fest brought back to my movie movie going uh year and for the sake of vicious was the film that really kind of made me realize that and so i wanted to leave off with the filmmakers and uh what they had to say to the questions they asked them on that round table uh thank you very much for checking out the sonic cinema podcast i've got the atlanta film festival coming up I'm looking forward to that. And then it's basically going to be working towards finishing up the year and whatever this crazy year is going to be. Uh, So check out, uh, subscribe to the Sonic Cinema Podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, and uh, subscribe to the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel if you haven't already. And... Check out patreon.com backslash sonicsema and continue to follow www.sonic-cinema.com for movie reviews, news, and blogs about uh, movies in general and about things that I recognize in movies that I really kind of love. So thank you very much for joining me today, and I leave you with the directors of For the Sake of Vicious. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, I really enjoyed the movie. It was, it was a nice reminder of what a solid, uh, like thriller looks like, because it feels like with everything going on, we haven't gotten too many of those this year. Uh, my main, my, my main question is about the, uh, score for the movie. And as, as a director who's also working on the music, is that something that you were thinking about as you were filming or was that did you start to have ideas before the pro in the pre-production process or how did that process uh work i had a like a, a bank of stuff saved up um just like you know when you're making music you just make stuff and you just bank it in folders project files and everything and then certain tones that certain vibes that you're into certain sounds that you're into and then um, I had some stuff saved in a sense. And then before we shot the movie, I showed Reese. And Reese was like, oh, that's that's cool. Like maybe we could throw that in the movie somewhere. And then that just developed. And then I remember on set, sometimes I would, I had like this app on my phone or whatever. And you, you just between take or, you know, between long breaks, you're just jingling around while the mood on set, like it's like an app with like a synths and stuff, little keys and notes and jingles. And then I was able to, uh, wire that back to my computer through like this email account so then I could go home or whatever and a month or two later and pull it up and see what was happening. Um, but uh, yeah, I had some stuff kind of pre-done, but it wasn't for the film. But then when the film was done, um, Reese just said, um, why don't you give it a, sh- a shot to score it? And I never scored a movie before other than um, If a Tree Falls, which played in Fantasia 2010. And that was more just like of a weird ambienty, like scary, drifty, dark noise type score. Um, so I had to like figure out like, oh, how do how do you score a movie basically, right? Because I'm used to making songs, like tracks, like like beats and things. Um, so that was the one thing Reese, like I was making stuff with like beats and stuff. And Reese was like, dude, like you got to take out the beats. You got to take out the drums and stuff because it's, 
little too um, weird. So a lot of the stuff you hear is actually stems from stuff that actually had beats, like drum and bass stuff and like industrial type things. Um, and then, uh, yeah. And then, you know, while he was editing the film, uh, he would send me clips. I would edit the, like score stuff to the clips, send it back. Um, and then that was interesting because, um, that became like a, I had to remove myself as a director, uh, per se. Um, and I trusted Reese fully to, you know, give me direction and guidance with the music. Um, so like he would come over, this is just before COVID hit and I would sit as the musician or the composer and he would be the director and, you know, he would, you know, why don't you do try this? Or he would call me with a, an idea he had for a sound or something like that. And I would try to emulate that later. And then, um, it came, it came pretty, came pretty quick. Actually. I was surprised. I thought it was going to be harder than, um, what it was, but it did take a lot of time because you also want to create original sounds and samples. You don't want to like go and download, you know, movie sound effect packs or whatever like that. So, um, that's where I was lucky where I had stuff saved, banked up over the years, little, knobby synth things or whatever and then just kind of change them to the to edit uh, did that answer your question i don't know if that yeah it definitely did thank you very much <laughs> if you have another one to follow up i don't know if i answered that fully no no i think that's good okay. i mean it was a it was a good collaboration unfortunately we had to do a lot of posts during lockdown which was interesting because then every you know we couldn't go into the sound studio with our post sound and anything so we had to do everything through emails, text messages, and sending each other videos. But um, it was actually probably one of the better collaborations I've had with working with a composer. I mean, it helped that co-directed the movie as well. But because uh, I don't edit to score or anything, I just edit dry and kind of picture what I hope the music would be. And it was the first time to work with somebody who actually successfully pulled off exactly what I was thinking in my head. And it was great too, because you could be in the middle of something that you didn't think was working and I could just get on the phone with him and go, you have like the first 30 seconds of this. Now I needed to do this. Boom, 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 boom. And you go, holy shit, dude. Yeah, I've got that. I've got, oh. and then, you know, 20 minutes later I'd have that and I could put it in the edit. So um, it was interesting. The cool thing about the score is that when we were shooting the movie and when we were talking about it in prep, we're originally like not going to have barely any yeah. score. Like the idea was like, no, we'll go like, we'll play this really real. And then once you saw the movie and how it was coming out, I think, you know, for an 80 minute movie, there's actually like 72 minutes worth of score now. So it's interesting how that plays out. Don't ask about Fantasia. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's perfectly fine. Um, what would you, what were, <clears throat> working on a scale, working on a movie like this uh, on a scale of, very pared down scale, uh, technically, you know, I'm guessing, uh, budgetarily as well. What are some of the, uh, challenges of that? Picking your battles of where, um, you know, what you're going to like, just basically picking your battles, what, what, where, you know, where you're going to spend the time on and what's more important. Yeah, everything on a low-budget movie is, is a fight, unfortunately. It's the wages. Yeah. It's, I think the thing that kills it for me, it's the amount of time you yeah. have to actually make the movie. Um, I've always been a big proponent of you have to try and find a way to get a longer schedule, and I know everybody goes, low-budget, shorter shooting schedules, but I'm like, it's impossible to ask anybody to pull off anything of any level of quality in 10 days. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's not fair to any filmmaker. I don't care who you are especially when it comes to features, like it's just not enough time, yeah. especially with the hours and the amount of work you're putting into it. So I think the trickiest thing was trying to stretch past 10 or 11 days to get us to ultimately at the end, I think we were actually at 18 days because we've had a couple of reshoots and pickup days. But um, yeah. for me, that was the toughest thing, but it's like Gabe said, you're, you're fighting a battle every day because people aren't getting paid enough. It's, it's really, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough business and it's, because of the sales markets these days and the amount of content out there, the budgets are just getting lower because movies aren't selling for what they used to. Yeah. So you're expected to do a lot more with less now too, yeah. you know, like our last films had maybe twice as the budget. Um, and that was like five years ago. And now, like we said, 
the times are changing and there's less, especially now. Yeah. And it's getting harder and harder to, um, cause you're literally having to convince people to work for no money, essentially. Now don't get me wrong. People did get paid, but compared to what you could get paid doing other jobs, it's, it's a lot and it's very tiring and it's, um, you know, you get to that point of like, I do really love doing this, but at what point do you have to take a step back and be like, I got to live too. I got to survive. And yeah, it's, uh, it's just, just, I think all aspects of it, unfortunately are very difficult. It's really hard to pinpoint one specific thing on this movie, especially it felt like you were fighting against the budget every single day, uh, which is tough because we both had individual films that were technically much bigger in scale uh, and done for similar budgets, but when you adjust for inflation and everything, like every year your dollar goes up. And what was, you know, where it used to be $100 would feel like $1,000, now $100 doesn't feel like that anymore. And you could really feel it on this production. That's not to say we didn't have a good time, because we did. There's a lot of days where a lot of laughs, a lot of smiles, but um, it's, getting, it's getting hard out there, man. So. We'd also have to cheat things too, because like yeah. all the motorcycle stuff, that you saw in the film uh, was shot like outside the shooting schedule because it would just require our buddies who had motorcycles and be me and Reese and this, the cameraman cinematographer. So we would shoot that like outside the schedule because, you know, you just try to shoot as much as you can, not in the schedule and kind of maybe sometimes not tell the producers that you're doing that. And then you just put it in the movie and then they're happy. Yeah. They don't ask questions. <laughs> And I mean, it's incredibly important for us to to um, to do everything as much as we can in camera. I mean, when you watch Vicious, with the exception of the muzzle flashes, like every single effect is done in camera. Squibs, bullet hits, the blood spray, like everything, the fights, you know? And that's really hard to do on a low budget like that. And you, you have to look at that budget and go, what are we going to sacrifice? And is it worth sacrificing to get this? So... Yeah. Yeah.